Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast that you're listening to right now, thank you so much, called Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. It is a daily podcast, 365 days a year, and each day we talk to an author about all of the things related to their career, their book, their life, and more in 30 minutes or less, because who has time? I am now an author myself, although I wasn't when I started this podcast, and you can get my new memoir, Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature, wherever books are sold starting July 1st, and my children's book, Princess Charming. You can learn more about me at zibbyowens.com, but really, you're here to learn more about the authors, and that is what we're going to do. Also, be sure to check out all the other podcasts in the Zcast Podcast Network. You can learn more at zcastnetwork.com and definitely check out those shows as well. I hope you'll all check out the all new Zibby Mag, Z-I-B-B-Y-M-A-G, the literary lifestyle destination with essays, book news, a lit lifestyle feature, and even some classes. Check it out, zibbymag.com. Sopan Deb is the author of Kea Das's second act. Sopan is a writer for the New York Times, where his topics have included sports and culture. He's the author of the memoir, Missed Translations, Meeting the Immigrant Parents Who Raised Me. Before joining the Times, Deb was one of a handful of reporters who covered Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign from start to finish as a campaign embed for CBS News. He was named a breakout media star of the election by Politico. At the New York Times, Deb has interviewed high-profile subjects such as Denzel Washington, Stephen Colbert, the cast of Arrested Development, 
Kyrie Irving, and Bill Murray. He lives in Washington, D.C. with his wife and dog. Welcome, Sopan. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. It is my pleasure. I want to hear about your latest novel. I know you've already also written a memoir. You're a journalist. You have all this amazing stuff. But let's talk about your latest book. Tell listeners everything about the second act for your characters and and why why this whole book came to be. Sure. The book's called Chaos, the second act. It came out on July 5th. I'm really excited about it. I started writing it in 2020, right after my memoir, uh, Mistranslations, came out. And I was thinking a lot about grief, and I was thinking a lot about healing and forgiveness and redemption. And so I set out to uh, write the story about this Bengali family who has been split apart by grief and aims to come together through art. They decide to stage a play after discovering it written by um, their teenage daughter, which they lost in a car crash. But the book explores a lot of things that are interesting to me, particularly uh, South Asian family dynamics, LGBTQ acceptance in the South Asian community. A lot of the book is based on uh, stuff I observed up close. For example, it takes place in the New Jersey suburbs where I grew up. All the characters are named after a family friend growing up, like Kea, who the name of the book is Kea Das, the second act. Kea is a family friend I had growing up and, and so forth and so on. But um, I also, uh, I'm a big theater person. Um, I grew up a theater kid. You know, I was in musicals in high school. I was in a musical in uh, college. I covered, I wrote about theater for the New York Times. And so I was able to bring that experience and, and combine that with my other personal experiences and put together this novel. And I'm, I'm really excited for it to be out there. Oh, congratulations. So soon after Pub Day. Awesome. Go back to the beginning for a sec, if you don't mind. So you were born in New Jersey. When did you... Actually, I was born in Lowell, Massachusetts. And then I moved to New... But I mostly grew up in New Jersey. I moved to to New Jersey when I was like three or four. So for all intents and purposes. Okay, fine. Okay. Lowell to New Jersey. And then when did you become interested? Like, when did you know writing was going to be a thing for you? Was theater the overwhelmingly, you know, bright interest in your life? Or when did, when did writing come into everything? Interesting question, because I actually started taking piano lessons when I was like six and music was a huge part of my life growing up. I originally was thinking about going to Berkeley College of Music to be for piano. So when did I start? I started writing music when I was, you know, shortly after I started learning how to play the piano. So in that respect, that that creative side of me has been in me since I was a kid. And in terms of when I started writing specifically, I went to college for journalism. That's when the kind of writing career really, as far as like putting words to paper, kind of earnestly began. And then in terms of writing fiction, when I did my memoir... I, after the memoir came out, I essentially said to myself, wait a minute, you, if you can write this and you already write for the New York Times, there's no reason you can't try a novel as well. And, and, you know, I, I read quite a bit and I was reading other novels. I was like, wait, I can, I think I can do this. And so I gave it a shot and that's essentially how the novel came about. And it was such an interesting exercise. I really enjoyed it. It did not feel like it it was difficult and challenging, but it wasn't, I really enjoyed the challenge of, of stringing, stringing the book together. Interesting. Start with the memoir though. When you tell me some of the main, because I have not read, I don't have the memoir and I wish I had gone back and read it before this interview and I'm sorry, but tell me about that. It's called Missing Translation, Missing in Translation. Missed Translations. Translations. Yeah. Tell me about that and what somebody who hasn't read that memoir should know about you. Sure. When I was turning 30, give or take, I, I realized I had not seen my dad in more than 10 years I hadn't, I hadn't seen my mom 
in about, I think at that point it was four or five years. And I didn't even know where they were living. I didn't know anything about them. Uh, I didn't know where they came from, how many siblings they had, their birthdays, their age, how they met. Um, my parents were arranged to get married and had a very difficult arranged marriage. And they got divorced after like 30 years. And the reason they stayed together all that time is because divorce is very stigmatized in South Asian culture. So we had a very, even though we all lived in the same house, you know, until I left for college, you know, we didn't know each other at all. We didn't speak. We didn't enjoy being around each other. And, and then after college, I just lost touch with my parents. Just, and, and at some point my dad just went back to India and didn't tell anybody just, I didn't even know until he was out there. So the book tracks a year of my life as I try to find my parents and essentially get to know them because I didn't know anything about them. I didn't, you know, and the big takeaway for me from the book was, you know, my generation. So I grew up in, you know, middle-class New Jersey. I didn't have to worry about like where my next meal was coming from. Right. I, I, I had the freedom to thrive, mm-hmm. you know, because, because I'm growing up in, you know, kind of middle-class America and, and my mom and dad, when they came here in the seventies, you know, they, they had to, they didn't know necessarily know where that next meal they kind of came here with very little money you know they didn't know where you know that they were going to survive right and so think about how that affects you and how that affects your worldview how that might so for example in the case of dealing with mental health struggles for my parents you know uh you know for me i have a i have a language to talk about mental health right oh i'm you know therapy you know depression etc for my parents they didn't even entertain thinking about those things but like, well why we got to you know, get a paycheck, you know? And so it was just a lot of getting to know, you know, the, them and, and trying to empathize with the generation before me and, and being the, you know, son of immigrants and just kind of learning about that story. That like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Once yeah. you get taking me back to psych 101 or whatever, but <laughs> yeah, those, those first you have to worry about survival, right? And then you can work your way up to like, you know, Absolutely. Yeah. Anxiety disorder like me, you know, (laughs) (laughs) right. I'm at the pinnacle of overthinking, you know, thank you. Too much much food is, you know, too much food, too much. Great. Perfect. Wonderful. Wait, how did you lose touch with your parents? Like that, that's such an, it's, it's, it's an interesting way to say that. So you go to college, like, did they not check in on you? Did you feel abandoned? Like, what was that like? You know, it's funny when you, when you say it like that, it's like, oh, wow, that is pretty weird. But for for me, it was totally normal. It didn't feel abnormal. And I'll tell you why I I liken it to, if you had a college roommate that you occupied the same space, but you didn't speak to, you weren't really friends. You just lived in the same space. And that was the case with my family and I, like we lived in the same space, but we didn't speak to each other. We didn't know each other. So when I left for college, you know, it was a, I, you know, we just had no kind of bonds to fall back on other than kind of sharing the same DNA. And then my dad left for India, you know, unexpectedly freshman year of college after my parents officially got divorced. Right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, what happened was, you know, we did have some contact during college, but the conversations increasingly became strained and ultimately just kind of petered out because we just didn't have any common frames of reference. We didn't have anything to talk about. They didn't know anything about me. I didn't know anything about them. And part of it was just, we didn't make the effort either. So, and then just for a micro, a micro example, right. Is, you know, my parents, you know, grew up in India, moved here. It's not like they're particularly into like American pop culture or anything like that. They're not into, you know, they're not particularly reading the news a lot. So here I am a journalism major at Boston university 
And, you know, they don't know my friends. They don't really understand what journalists do. They don't understand, you know, what it is that I'm trying to do. And so it made our conversations just very stilted, right? And and then I woke up one morning and I realized, oh my God, it's been a long time since I even talked to them. And it's incredibly strange when you say it like that. But in that moment, in, in my 20s, as I went through this, it didn't even... It didn't register for me. For me, what was weird is when I'd go to friends' homes and I'd see like very warm parents. My friends are talking about like intimate details over there. I'm like, wait, what is that? That's weird. How do you do that? And so for me, that was weird. But as I, you know, as I got to kind of a couple of years ago, I realized, wait a minute, no, no, no. I'm the one with a strange situation. I should probably examine this in some time. So did you feel love? Did you feel like they loved you? Uh, that's an interesting question. See, it's not like, you know, and I think this is the case for many South Asian parents. It's not like love is an easy language. It's not like my parents were growing up being like, I love you. Wow. What a great kid you are. That's not how it worked. It was, you know, you have these cultural expectations or this, this and that, but their parents, they they weren't warm parents, Uh, but that's, that's culturally pretty, pretty common. So did I feel loved? I don't know, but I didn't know that that was a, an obligation. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't like, it wasn't something that I knew that I was lacking. Now I will say once I went through the kind of memoir process, we had a lot of very difficult and, and ultimately interesting and satisfying conversations. Yeah. I, I think my parents, you know, very much do love me. I just, it, it, it's, it's just not something that comes easy for them to express because again, that requires very much being in touch with your emotions and being able to talk through them and be willing to talk about that stuff. And that was not something that came, came easy to my parents. But when you were in I would high say school- it was a loveless household. I would say generally it was a loveless household because, you know, my parents were, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story, which is the way my parents got arranged to get married, which is my, my dad was living in New Jersey and he was an engineer. He had just moved to the U.S. and he was working, I think it was one of his first jobs and he was lonely. And he puts an ad in a, uh, a matrimonial newspaper targeted towards Indians. And, and so, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm X age, I'm an engineer living in New Jersey, looking for a wife and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So he gets a couple of responses and he gets this response from my mother, you know, headshots, you know, it's kind of like, you know, pre, you know, pre-internet Tinder essentially. Right. And so my dad flies to Toronto at the invitation here to meet was meet my my, eventually my mom and essentially he knocks on the door and my mom opens the door goes who are you what are you doing here and essentially what had happened was is that my mom's mom so my grandmother responded to the ad pretending to be my mom essentially oh wow and that's how my parents met and my mother did not want to marry my father but was pressured by you know her mother to marry him and and that, and then, you know, cultural expectations being what they are, she of course did it. And that's how my parents got married. And they, you know, they weren't a good match from the start. And if you think about this, like, oh, you know, I think if you marry out of love, you, know, you have children out of love, you have, you know, it's, it, it's, that's the process, right? Whereas when an arranged marriage, especially one like my parents, it's a little bit more of a business transaction, right? You have kids because that's what you're supposed to do. You get married because that's what you're supposed to do culturally. Um, the parents help set that up because that's what's supposed to happen. And so it's it's so the, the the question of like, oh, did I feel love? It's like when you're the product of kind of 
a business transaction that's supposed to happen. It just creates a little bit of a different dynamic. Now, that's not to say that, you know, children of arranged marriages are not loved. Mm-hmm. Other children, you know, I know plenty of, you know, South Asian children who, you know, have parents who got arranged to get married, had a very loving household and a loving relationship with their parents and they, their parents love each other. But it was just in this particular household, it, I would say it was a loveless home growing up. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Then I find it so interesting because in your novel, right away, there is so much love. Like there is the loss and the the deep feeling of a loss of a child, right? You, you, it's that sensation and heightened emotion. Whereas the way you're describing your home was like completely the opposite. Yeah, I would say that's right. I also kind of felt like when I was, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I examined my own parents in the memoir. So I want to do something different with the novel. Yeah. With that being said, there are parts of the novel, like there's the character of Shantanu, who's the father, who, who when we meet him, in, at the beginning of the book, he's living by himself and he's alone and he's separated from his family. My father could, my father de- was, remains in that position, you know, cause he yeah. lives in India yeah. by himself and he spent a good portion of his life by, life by himself. You know, I was telling, you know, my, my wife, Wesley, you know, we're, we obviously very, you know, we just got married last month yeah. and we, I, and we, my, the, the, the joy that I felt with her yeah. At the altar, you know, that, that 30 seconds of, Hey, you may not kiss the bride or whatever. My parents never felt, you know, they're now combined 160 years old or whatever the, yeah, give or take, they've never felt that for 30 seconds, you know? And so, but I examined that a lot in the, in the memoir, but there are parts of that that I think exist throughout the book. It's just, it's just in a different form, if that makes sense. Wow. So interesting. 
I know I was relating to the dad in the book whose joints were like cracking as he's like up there and like trying to get, I'm like, why can I not even stand up anymore? This is <laughs> Fair enough. Oh my gosh. Anyway, so thanks for that. You're like throwing this aging rapidly 45 year old a bone with these uh, creaking joints and all the rest. But uh, <laughs> So quickly, what to, I hate the word pivot because it's so like used to, to jump back and forth between journalism covering sports, doing all the stuff that you're doing at the times and everything, and then dipping into your, the other part of your brain. Like, how do you go back and forth? I am like, to be honest, I'm working on a memoir that's under, I mean, a novel that's under contract now. And I'm like, I keep putting it off because I'm like, I need a day where I can just like focus only on that. And like that day is not coming. Like, how do you, can you go back and forth in a day? Can you like jump into it for an hour? Like the way you could an essay or an article or something? Yeah. The way I do it and the way it works for me is I set a cap for myself. Okay. Meaning, you know, I do my, you know, if I'm writing for time to do that, you know, obviously. But in terms of what I have, you know, a bunch of creative products. And what I do is, let's say I'm writing a novel. Uh, and I say to myself, okay, I'm going to write a thousand to 1500 words today. Let's say I let's take an arbitrary number or, or this section. And no matter how much energy I have, when I get to the end of that section, I, I stop. I don't care if I have, I can write more. I don't care. You know, I just stop because this way, you know, if, 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 if you, let's say your book is 75,000 words, yep. I look at it as 75, 1000 word essays. And so this way I can kind of maintain the energy to keep going yeah. And also it makes the book seem a little less daunting that way. Yeah. You see it as a bunch of little things to write yeah. rather than one giant book. And that's, that's what helps me. And in terms of your other question, just kind of how do I bounce back and forth? I really enjoy writing creatively. And so journalism is not a particularly creative endeavor. It's not. And at the New York times, particularly New York, New York Times is an editor's medium, not a writer's medium. I get by, I get the byline, but the editors are often kind of the driving force between what gets written, why it gets written, how you write it, et cetera. Mm. Um, and that's the case at all levels. Now, for me, what's great about writing fiction or writing a play or writing a pilot or whatever else, it's your domain. Mm-hmm. You, know, you get to put really put your voice into it. Yep. it you have ownership over the characters or memoir, whatever, whatever it may be. And that makes, it makes the writing a lot less, it makes it more fun. It makes it more, it feel, feel like you're, you're driving the conversation a lot more because you literally are. Yeah. That's not as much the case in journalism. Journalism, it's a, it's a lot more of an editor's medium and, and for good reason, because they are amazing guardrails against, you know, sometimes your own worst impulses or, you know, their fact-checking or whatever, the, whatever else that may be. But I don't view it as, you know, it's you, to your point, you're using a different part of your brain and I have a lot more fun using that part of the brain. So it doesn't feel as onerous on a day-to-day basis. I'm doing writing for the times and also writing a novel and also writing a play, you know, when you put it like that, yes, it does seem kind of exhausting, but if you put it this way, if you are doing your day job, but then you're also, you know, uh, I'm just making a makeup a hobby. You're, you're a, a knitter. You love knitting. I'm just making this up, you know, or, or you play basketball or table tennis. You wouldn't ask yourself, well, how do I manage playing basketball and my day job? Well, because you like playing basketball. And that's how I feel about creative writing. That's a great analogy. I love that. Yeah. Even like putting on music, right? Yeah, 100%. 
you don't, you know, just, I view, you don't I view, just fit that in. Either. Yeah, I view creative writing as as therapeutic. Mm-hmm. I get to interrogate parts of myself that I wouldn't necessarily otherwise interrogate. Yep. In doing it, but other people, like Wesley, my wife. Wesley, her outlet is cooking. She loves to cook. She loves experimenting with recipes. She loves, you know, she loves, she doesn't even like eating. She loves just cooking. And that's, that's for her, that's her thing. Yeah. For me, my thing is writing. Yep. My husband also loves cooking. I've gained like 30 pounds, but it's okay. It's same, same. <laughs> same, same. Oh my gosh. I'm like, I'm like, but I don't want it to stop. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I love that. Um, but then do you have an then do you have an outline? When when you jump into it for a thousand words, like do you know what's coming? Like I feel like part of the time would be spending figuring out what's coming next or not. Yes. So I did a lot of improv comedy in my 20s. And which is actually for any of your listeners who are thinking about either writing a novel or you know, you know, I actually think taking improv is incredible training to write a novel hmm. because it teaches you storytelling. It's fun. It's, it teaches you arc. It teaches mm-hmm. you, you know, how to make your brain think in a, in a different way. And, and so for me, I don't like to outline. I mean, I'll have a general kind of idea of what I'm trying to explore, but I don't like to outline yeah. because I like getting to know the characters as I, as I write them. Mm-hmm. So, but to your point, yeah, part of that, so part of the process is trying to figure out what's next, yeah. whether it's the next project, whether it's the next page, whether it's the next paragraph. And there, most of the time I enjoy that because I love like, okay, what's, what am I doing? How do I write myself out of this corner? Then there are times where you go, oh man, I've written myself into a corner. <laughs> and, and I should have probably outlined this. I should have probably planned where I was going here or I don't know. Uh, but this is where actually I, I, I also send pages constantly to friends. And I say, I've got 10,000 words here of an 80,000 word novel. I don't know what to do. Read it. Tell me what you think. I'm con- and some, some writers are very like, you know, they hold on to their writing and they go, no, 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 I can't show it to anybody. No way. Me, if I have 10,000 words, I'm sending it. I'm sending it because oftentimes friends and trusted people are giving you great feedback and they're like, wait, why don't you try this? Have this character do X and Y instead of do this. And, and, and that's, that's really helpful to me. But I know not all writers like doing that because they're very, you know, they're very possessive, so to speak. And I, I understand that too, whatever, whatever works for you. Interesting. I feel like I, I only send it to my editor because I'm afraid if people don't like it, like then I have to start over and then I'll like never get anywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, I will say to, to your point, I wrote a novel last year while this one was in development that I thought was really good. I didn't show it to many people in the process. I just, I just had the idea. I actually outlined it. I yeah. had the idea and I, and I and I wrote it and I thought it was like really, you know, strong. And, you know, of course I wouldn't write a bias and you work six months on it. And, you know, yeah. and some people that I really trust read it at the end and they look at me and they go, this should not be your next book. This oh, is no. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? And, 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 you know, I, I sent it to some, you know, people in the business that I really trust and, yeah. and they were, they kind of agreed. Huh. Like, Man, I really and so that was when I resolved to myself. I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to sending people stuff as I go, <laughs> not outlining and not outlining, and this way, uh, and this way, I avoid uh, this this uh, calamity. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, that is that's really interesting. I mean, I feel like the the second novel is so. I keep hearing all these cautionary tales about it, but that's interesting, and it's so nice that you have a group that you trust that much. That's yeah. 
Yeah, I'm very fortunate. Uh, well, I don't know that they consider themselves fortunate. I think I pretty much <laughs> them. I force them. Like when your friend comes to you and says, "Man, man, I really need you to read my pages." Yeah, they they don't feel like they can say no because I will badger them until they do. And nice. so I don't think they consider themselves lucky, but I certainly do. <laughs> Excellent reading by you know shoving pages down their throat. Maybe that's why they didn't give you such good feedback. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Maybe you should find some more willing readers and see what right, they say right, about right. this. Before, before you toss it all together, I would get a second read from a new group. <laughs> okay. What advice do you have to aspiring authors? Oh man, I, I just gave one away, which was to always send pages to people. One other thing I would say is, and I think I'm sure you know this better than anybody, like Yes, your talent matters. Of course it does. And work ethic matters. I also think that networking is really, really important in in the industry, whether you're writing nonfiction, whether you're a journalist, whether you're, especially if you're a journalist, frankly, um, whether you're a fiction, because ultimately a lot of, we are kind of brought up with the myth that the world is a meritocracy. And if you work really hard and you have the talent that you're going to, you know, you're going to get to where you need to go. But oftentimes a lot of, a lot more stuff comes about because you are A, easy to get along with, and B, you know the right people at the right places. And so I think it's really important to cultivate relationships. And I'm very fortunate that you know I've had amazing editors who I've developed really deep relationships with that I, that I hope will continue on for a long time, but likely won't because they'll get sick of me and I don't blame them <laughs> for that. But I really think it's important as, as you begin your writing career to have mentors, have rabbis where you can. And, and, and so that, so that when opportunities come about, they, they consider you for them or they already know who you are, you know, and that, I think that's a really underappreciated thing about coming up as a writer. I wish writing was just about writing, but it's not, unfortunately. Very true. That's true. Especially if you want to sell it, I guess. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Congratulations on your book. And I'm wishing you all the best. And I want to know what happens with the second book and if you can revive it at all. So. <laughs> thank you. Good luck. I'm thrilled. I'm really excited. And I'm uh, looking forward to chatting again. You too. All right. Take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Hey, thank you so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.